Hey folks, welcome to A Talk in the Woods, where we go onto the trails, dirt roads, rivers and lakes of Maine's forests and mountains to talk to the people who live and work in them. I'm Brian Wenzel, Executive Director of the Maine Mountain Collaborative, which is working to tell the story of this special place. Today I'm talking with Karen Tilburg, Executive Director of the Forest Society of Maine, which is known as the Land Trust for Maine's North Woods. Karen and I have worked with each other for almost 20 years across multiple jobs and organizations. Karen has been a bit of a mentor for me, and her career fully spans the modern era of land conservation in the Maine woods, starting back in the early 90s. Karen is really one of the most respected and accomplished leaders in the Maine land conservation community, so I'm really pleased to be able to share our conversation with you today. So please join Karen and me on a warm summer morning walking along the headwaters of the Kennebec River, near where it flows out of Moosehead Lake, a stretch of river called the East Outlet. As you'll hear, this is a special place for both of us. I hope you enjoy. Yes, so we are on the banks of the East Outlet that flows out of Moosehead Lake. And it is a wonderful, beautiful spot, important for fisheries, for recreation, scenic attributes. And it's one of my favorite spots. I love fishing here and I've been fishing here for quite a while. And there's the East Outlet and the West Outlet from Moosehead and they flow eventually into the Kennebec and the Kennebec flows into the ocean. So it's, it's just a wonderful river system here. This is a hiking trail that goes along the river. Yes. So fishermen can access the river. You can kind of hear it in the background. So my connection to this place, Karen, I don't know if you remember this, but when I was about three years old, my dad and his college buddies bought a camp on Indian Pond, which is the lake that the East Outlet flows into, accessible only by boat. So when I was a five or six, uh, right. we started going oh, there. I and had forgotten that. A beautiful log cabin and fishing the East Outlet from below. Can you smell the fish here? I can. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. <laughs> and, Go ahead. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> and uh, oh, that smells so good. And we're fishing the West Outlet and and hiking, we'd hike up to Eagle Rock uh -huh. from the lake. And so that's where I got. This is like where I got my connection to the Maine woods. Oh, Brian, was well, this it's, place? It's wonderful that we're here together today. It's um, you know, I fished here myself for years, and I work at the Forest Society of Maine and. President CEO uh, now and I started here about 10 years ago at the Forest Society as a deputy director and was responsible for increasing our presence in the Moosehead Lake area. We already had a strong presence holding hundreds of thousands of acres of easements here but we wanted to be more connected to the community. So I lived up here part-time and I fished the East Outlet a lot. Speaking of fish? Oh, yeah. It's a uh, chub? Chub. Big chub. Do you think it? someone just threw it on the shore or something? And then an animal ate it? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that is what happened. So chub are, I don't, is there another name for them? <laughs> uh, well, people often swear when they get a chub on them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, people consider them trash fish. They're very plentiful, but the animals certainly eat them. That's right. And I, if I'm being, getting skunked in a body of water, I, 
if I catch a chub, then I, you know, it makes up. At least I have had a fish. <laughs> they sometimes, they can really they fight. They fight, and, yeah. I know. They're, they're, I don't know why they have such a bad reputation. Um, well, I, I used to do, especially like the West Outlet when there's tons of chub in the summer with the kids, I'll narrate my own imaginary uh -huh. fishing show. You're like, <laughs> here we are in the West Outlet, world-class chub fishing here. People come from all over the world for the chub at West Outlet. You could have one of those competitions like they have for bass, yeah. you know. <laughs> that thing was huge though. It was sizable. It was yeah. half, a, half a chub in the middle of the trail, 40 feet from the water. Uh, yeah, so anyway, I, I fished here a lot by myself. Kind of self-taught but um my husband chris and i fished here a lot he built a drift boat and we had some pretty exciting times floating down here in his boat and catching landlocked salmon and trout and sometimes having mishaps on rocks i never hear about those no <laughs> yep <laughs> they happened he built his own boat out of wood? Yes. Uh, he, a drift he, boat? He built a Mackenzie drift boat. Wow. Actually, two of them. One of them he sold, but he kept one. And we fished here and in the west branch of the Penobscot, the Big Eddy area, and on the Kennebec in the warmer weather for smallmouth bass. And um, it was a beautiful boat, just beautiful. Yeah. But this area that we're walking in right now, of course, was conserved some time ago because of the fisheries values and then over time both the Moosehead conservation easement that the Forest Society of Maine holds covers hundreds of thousands of acres around here the Appalachian Mountain Club acquisition and their their land here and state ownerships have combined to really bring conservation to, you're adding it all together, um, almost a million acres going up toward Baxter Park. Wow. And it's, it's just spectacular to know that this area, much of it is still managed forest, but won't be developed and won't have infrastructure and will be here and accessible too for the public. So how do we, but I oh, came here we for decades even before I started working with the area. It's been part of my life for decades. So remind me what the mission is of the Forest Society. The mission is basically to conserve the ecological, cultural, economic, and recreational features of, of Maine's forests and really focused on the big north woods. And we hold a particular niche of Conser holding conservation easements. There are many organizations like the Nature Conservancy Maine Chapter that will acquire land that has particular attributes. Also, as I mentioned, Appalachian Mountain Club holds considerable acreage for more of the recreation features. But what the Forest Society does is, is unique and we hold conservation easements on big tracts of forest land and now are responsible for a million acres of conservation easements in northern Maine. So that's when the Forest Society owns the development rights so it can't be developed 
and the private landowner continues to to own and manage it for working forest. Yep, um, and perhaps a little known fact is that we do hold some ecological reserve easements. So yeah, we hold about 10 or so percent of our portfolio are ecological reserve easements, which um, are areas that have special ecological attributes. And so there are no, no forestry is permitted in those areas. Um, and that's really a targeted approach to ensuring that areas that are sensitive can just let nature take its course. So no timber harvesting in the ecological right. No, no timber harvesting and no obviously no development yeah. and just pedestrian recreation um, is permitted. And we work with partners on those. We hold our, our ecological reserves are often on other organizations' lands, such as the Nature Conservancy, the Northeast Wilderness Trust, and state lands too. So oftentimes an organization like TNC will come to us and say, would you hold an ecological reserve easement on this land so that we know that it'll always be protected. And so those partnerships are very important to us. There are a bunch of projects that I feel like you're involved with that have partners. Yes. Northeast Wilderness Trust, Nature Conservancy, local land trusts. Right, we're working with Down East Lakes Land Trust now on a project where um, we'll be holding an, a working forest easement on um, community forest land. And we hold some ecological reserve easements on, on their land as well. So it's wonderful to be able to be here for all kinds of forest landowners. We have forest landowners who are commercial landowners that come to us and sometimes the environmental organizations will come to us and ask for our help. So what was your early connection to the Maine Woods? Well, Brian, I, I have to say that I feel like I'm one of the luckiest people in the universe because I wake up in the morning and I, I'm able to do the work I love, which is bring conservation to the place I love. I think it's fair to say that I have kind of a love affair with the North Woods way back in the day after I graduated from University of Vermont with a Bachelor of Science in Wildlife Biology, I had a chance to work in Washington DC on the Alaska Lands Bill that ultimately led to the very significant creation of national parks, national wildlife refuges, some forest service ownerships, and some wilderness areas in Alaska. That was a massive effort. And eventually the legislation called the Alaska Lands Act, HR 39, passed. And while I was amazed by the effort, I really didn't want to stay in Washington, D.C. I was an outdoor person and wanted to be doing the, the kind of work that connected me with wildlife. And so I I put my resume out, out in the world and I got a job in Maine teaching backpacking. <laughs> and this was like 1979, 80-ish, 79 probably. So I got this job with the International Backpackers Association. 
which sounded like a big group with lots of <laughs> important <laughs> um, people and scope. And really, it was a tiny, tiny group with, I think, one staffer. And they hired people like me to lead backpacking trips. I had had a, a Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School training during college and somewhat, you know, knew what I was doing. <laughs> I was very young. And, but I, one summer, took trips, led backpacking trips down the Appalachian Trail in Maine out of Lincoln, Maine. <laughs> it was such a hoot, the whole thing. That's not really that close to the Appalachian Trail. Or it's... It was, yeah, Lance Field was the principal of the group and he would take us in this beat up old van to the start, which I think was A-Ball bridge area. Yeah. And then we'd hike south for a week and then he'd find us. Which way, which way here? Up. So, yeah, we're we're gonna go up and then yep. come curving. Well, let me just see where we are. Yeah. I hope I didn't get us lost <laughs> talking like this. <laughs> but anyway, so this was like the time of the spruce budworm salvage, and you know that had been ravaging the north woods, and the spruce budworm had really hit Maine's north woods hard in the 70s and 80s, and and there was huge salvage operations involving very significant sized clear cuts and um, so it was kind of a startling <laughs> um, experience for me as we drove into and out of the north woods to see so much land harvested and, and the piles and piles of salvage logs just as far as you could see <laughs> along the roads but you know I just fell in love with the place the roughness of it the the beauty you know uh, the mountains uh, all the water the lakes everything just just resonated in my soul and you know I I felt like it was home for me kind of a home spiritual home and I, I I'll say that and I I really felt like this was a place that I wanted to try to use my professional skills to to try to conserve in a way that would work for the state the communities the people the everyone because you had a law degree right and and it really led me to get a law degree ah. and, and to continue to explore ways to bring conservation to, to the Maine woods and, and to all the resources in Maine. So it, <laughs> it, it's been, you know, that was like say 1980 and now we're at 2021. And so it's been 40 years of work. And, you know, I was able to go to law school in Maine and work right after law school with one of the champions, the leaders of Maine conservation, Clinton B. Townsend, or Bill Townsend as, as he was known. And he taught me so much about how to pursue conservation in an effective way and a patient way <laughs> and a, you know, a skillful way. And 
so I really learned at the feet of a master. And then I, I was able to work as staff attorney and director of advocacy at Maine Audubon during a particularly productive time for conservation environmental legislation. Um, we drafted and passed with a lot of help from legislative leaders and other groups a number of significant pieces of legislation, the Natural Resources Protection Act, the ban on overboard discharge, Maine's First Forest Practices Act. We strengthened the Endangered Species Act in Maine before the bill that we supported passed. You, you couldn't kill an endangered species, but you could destroy their habitat with no penalty. And the, the amendment we supported and helped draft basically prevented damage to critical habitat for endangered species. And so we were, it was just a very, very active time. And to be involved in, in this time was a great honor and, and a wonderful experience for me. And then I worked for the Northern Forest Alliance as, as the big land sales started happening in the north woods across Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York. And that was <laughs> quite the time of public policy, of, of public involvement. There's, oh, there's the beach. There's a beach pool. Yeah. All right, so we, I passed it. Right? Oh, okay. I'm talking too much. Here, I'll go in front. Yeah. So see where, where it's all white water? That's yep. where we're heading. It. And there should be a... Everything looks so different. Mm. I think it's maybe the water level. Yeah. So when did you go to work for the Northern Forest Lines? That would be... Let's see. Um, let me just think for a minute. <laughs> so I left Maine Audubon around 91. And I, I started my family and had a, a law practice and actually it was hired by the Alliance to do some work. And that's, so that would be in the mid nineties. I, I worked for the Alliance for the, a number of years there in the mid nineties. If I'm thinking, if I'm remembering correctly. That, ma that makes sense. Early to mid nineties. Oh gosh, I can't even remember now the date. I was there in the beginning of the Northern Forest Alliance and helped work with a critical group of people, including Walter Graff from the Appalachian Mountain Club, Bob Purcell from the time the Wilderness Society, Jim Shallow from Vermont Natural Resources Council, and, and then some folks from Tamara Van Rijn from Spinif Society for the protection of New Hampshire forests and some folks from New Hampshire Audubon, kind of an initial core group of five or six organizations. A conservation Law Foundation was there in the beginning. Do you want to go down? Is there a trail back here that... Yeah, let's... Um, I'm wondering if... It, I can see a little trail down there, so... Yeah. There is a trail down there, I just... Oh, down to it. Let me, let me just... Captivated by remembering. Here, we may have to go cross country here. And I think Bob Purcell and I were like the first c 
co-chairs of the Alliance. Oh, those were heady days. Oh, man. They were, we were like wrestling with all these big questions about, you know, what, what kind of conservation is suitable for this region. What was amazing for me was to be right in the center of this regional discussion about the future of the Northern Forest at a time when the world cracked wide open. You know, what had been a settled sort of um, world of paper company ownerships across the region changed in almost an instant as one after another of the major paper companies sold off their their ownerships and it was shocking people just had a, could have hardly believe it and how you know how to respond to that how to do something to hold on to what people loved was the, the question that all of this change posed so for me I was so fortunate to be working for the Northern Forest Alliance and my job frankly was to go and talk to people in the communities in, in places like Grand Lake Stream, Jackman, Greenville, these gateway communities that were rocked by these changes and fearful that what they loved would, would vanish. The remote forests, the undeveloped shorelines, the access um, to the public, the wildlife, and the essence of the Northwoods. And in a sentence or two, what was the threat? What was happening? Well, so the paper companies, basically, um, all of them, <laughs> were guided by financial analysts to dispose of non-productive assets or non-performing assets like forest land that was just sort of sitting on the books. So they sold the land in a matter of years, three or four years, most of them, to timber management investment groups, most of them. And that, those were sort of new entities that people didn't know what was going to happen with these new owners. Many of them were basically investors who had bought this land with a fairly short time horizon of 10 or 15 years and, and people didn't know if they would develop the shorelines for second homes, whether they would divide the land into small parcels, relatively speaking, and start basically the unwinding of the Great Northwoods and to gate the land and prevent people from hunting and fishing and, and just being on the land the way they always had been terrifying, frightening time. Because the paper companies own that land for well sure. over a hundred years. Right, so, so there had been is what this people knew. century of stability, relative stability. If anything, paper companies were aggregating their ownership. And most of them were managing on a fairly long time horizon in terms of rotations of 40 or 50 years. So here we are. This is the sluice here. So can you describe what we're looking at? Oh, so this is a, a very special place for me. The river narrows here because of, of rock formations. And so across the river is steep cliffs, uh, rock, and the river is constricted. So there is a rather 
strong drop and whitewater rapids that in high water can be very, very dangerous. But it creates an eddy because of all this and it's a, a delight to fish here because you can basically fish the eddy. And it's, I love it because it's quiet and it's easy to fish from. I lost my husband, Chris, this January from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's an area that he and I fished a lot. And he asked for some of his ashes to be dispersed here. And I did. And so he's here right now with me. Do you feel him? I do. Yeah. Very much. So should I string up here and cast a few? I want to see you catch them. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. Yeah, I fished alone before for 10 or 15 years, kind of self-taught. And my daughter, Linnea, and I learned together. Kind of because of work, I was always going out and seeing people fish and look fun. And so I, I kind of just learned. But with Chris, we, we really did a lot of fishing together here in Maine and out west. And he was an excellent fisherman. He, he could call them in. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. And some days I would be so frustrated because he would be catching them and I would be like not. And every now and then near the end of the day, he'd realize that I was kind of sniffling <laughs> with sadness. And he'd say, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give you a few pointers. <laughs> He would take pity on me. He, he loved to fish and he was a very good fisherman and had very, very good ethic too around it, although he could swear. But he loved this river and he fished the Moose River and the West Branch and, and others too, but we had some special times here for sure. That's the thing, so many people do. And that's what is so wonderful and unique about Maine's Northwoods. It's, it's so productive still. It has wonderful eastern brook trout populations. It has landlocked salmon populations that are healthy. It has its intactness, its vastness, its bigness. And we are the lucky recipients of that. And it's on our watch now to try to pass this big place to the next generation and do so with every fiber we can, ounce of fiber we can, to not lose it on our watch. And, and that's really what is so moving, that so many people feel that way and are committed to that and are working together. We, we work in Maine. There's a saying, we play well in the sandbox. <laughs> uh, and we do. People work very, very well together and share the strategies that people help each other fundraise and help each other get a, the projects across the finish line. And it's truly special. And because of that, Maine has gone from about five or 6% of the state being in conservation to 21% of the state being in conservation in about 20 years. That's amazing. It's amazing. And the Governor Mills and her Climate Change Council has established a goal to have 30% of Maine conserved by 2030 and we've got to work hold hands lock arms and make that happen and have it a good chunk of it help with the woods too mm -hmm. and, uh, there are special places all over the state but but having having the north woods 
continue to be conserved as we have means we're helping store carbon and sequester carbon and keep all those other things that we love intact. So I love it with the, the cliffs there, the rocks. It just sort of magnifies the sound of the river. The roar of the sluice pool. Is that a uh, sinking fly? No, he said to use a, well, he said, you know, use a dry fly or an emerger to start. So what's nice about this is if you're a fish, you can like be right on the edge of this and all this food is coming down on this conveyor belt. That's why it's such a neat place in my opinion. But you can't <laughs> describe it too accurately or all the people that listen will know where I am. <laughs> the, the people that know, know. Did you see? Yeah. Oh. Got a bite. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is great. But I missed it. Oh. Did he did he spit it or? He spit it. I, I mean I, I think he spit it. You got a nice cast. Oh thank you. I don't know if I could have reacted more quickly or it's like almost he missed it or something. Yeah, sometimes they just nibble and Yeah. Yeah, there's no way you could have hooked it. I just want to make sure it's still on. Yeah, there it is. So you're kind of putting it into the current and then pulling it into the eddy. When I go further downstream, it'll be even more the eddy. But I wanted to start up here first, just to see what might happen. Maybe that was Chris saying hi. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, you can't catch me. <laughs> oh, the devil. <laughs> I mean, I find it entrancing here. I could just stand here for hours, just mesmerized by the sound and the water. Yeah, and, and I mean, you're really, it's about being here. Yeah. And uh, you just happen to be fishing. Right, and, and for me, fishing is about tuning into the place, becoming more aware of, I don't know if you saw the, the casings of the bugs coming up, but you know, there's so much happening. And what are the fish doing? What are they eating? What's happening with the hydraulics? What's the weather like? Are the fish worried that an eagle will come and get them? And you know, I feel also increasingly aware of how all this water, this place was so important for the first people here, the Wabanaki tribes. This place has meant so much to people for so long. And to be stewards of it in every way we can just a privilege. It's a very different relationship with the land and water than what Western society has. Yes. For me, recognizing that these people have been here for thousands of years. <laughs> and it's just so important to remember that and be aware of that even if we are, I'm a newcomer and I'm very aware of that. Yeah, I've really been increasingly thinking about that and, and for me, I, kind of personalize a little bit helps to think about okay well there's places here that I've come with my dad and my grandfather 
and even my great grandfather had a connection with some of these places in the oh. Maine woods. And it makes it special to me, but multiply that by 10. Yeah. And not just in this region, but you know, in certain spots, you know that your ancestors did camp here or traveled on this river. And you know at which seasons they were here. And you know, that type of connection is pretty, I mean, it's, it's spiritual, it's pretty deep. It's very deep. And I can't claim to truly understand it, but that's my way of being adjacent to that understanding in a way, I guess. Well, I, I think being connected to the land in whatever way you can be is so important. Oh, I want another fish, Brian. <laughs> ah. Whatever the story is, you know, but I think the most profound story is the story of the first people. And there are thousands of years of living here and, and being so deeply integrated with this land and water. Oh, I know there's a fish in there, and I'm gonna cast a little further downstream. All right. See what I can do here. See how the eddy's bringing it up? Yep. Let's see if anything happens here. Hello, fishies. <laughs> Come on, Chris. <laughs> You know, I was going to say, Karen, I mean, you're, you're kind of a hero and a mentor to me because when I was, you know, all those land sales were happening, the paper companies selling off land, I was in high school and into college. And I was just, uh, you know, that's, those conversations was where I wanted to be. And wow. I was well, really yeah. involved, you know, I followed, in college, I followed the Northern Forest Lands Council. I brought students to a public hearing in Vermont to try to get, you know, I had, I organized a, a forum on campus, you know, with people who are involved in it. And I was like, guys, we got to pay attention to this. This is really important. That's good for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm writing a book that talks, that really tells the stories of some of those really big conservation deals, the Pingree easement, the West Branch easement, the TNC acquisition of St. John, the AMC acquisition of 100 Mile Wilderness, the Downey Six Land Trust, and NEF protection in eastern Maine, and then the Moosehead deal. I'm telling these stories and how they came to be and, and what was happening at the time, and it, it's so rich. And I'm, I'm doing it because I'm not a writer or a historian, but I realize people are retiring and the the files are are being discarded or archived and no one knows where they are and we've got to tell this story because it's really about how small groups of people can do big things and do so in a way that has lasting impact and how people can love a place and make a difference but also the unique approach that I think has taken place in Maine and and it's a recipe of success where because Maine it was so privately owned, such a huge percentage was privately owned, you know, you couldn't go from so much private ownership to public ownership. So the recipe of using easements, um, forest legacy funding, land for Maine future funding, local support with local visions. There were a lot of friends of groups that, that helped create visions for the conservation around them. And that gave public officials and leaders courage 
they knew that the local folks were supportive. They were willing to fight for more funding. And so the recipe of local support, easements, and targeted public funding has worked so well over the past 20 years. And, you know, I think as I look ahead, I see a mix of things coming into play. I think there will be more of the larger ownerships that sell carbon mm -hmm. um, offsets, which will probably bring some increased diversity and in forest health to our forests. I think that we're going to see some intergenerational transfers of some very large ownerships in Maine, and I, I think we're trying to be ready for whether there's some opportunities for more conservation easements and public acquisition there. I think we're going to see some larger sales in the next five or, or so years. And, and one of the wonderful things about Maine's conservation community and the Maine Mountain Collaborative is that we're talking together and, and trying to be ready should these things happen and have a plan and have some ideas for funding. And that's just remarkable. And we should do no less given the importance of the Northwoods. You know, I think there's concern about the relatively young age class of Maine's forests and desire to try to find ways to have more mature forests in at least in parts of the, the North Woods and certainly some older growth areas just for diversity and especially as climate changes. Um, one thing I'm excited about is how the conservation community is using science to be looking at corridors for how animals and plants over time could move across the landscape with climate change. And, and just being able to think about conservation planning and the context of climate resiliency, which is so critical, sadly, but it is critical. So those are things that, that I'm excited about and that I hope will see my fly anymore. Uh, I can see it right there. Do you see it? Yep. It's looking good. It's floating. Alright, I need to catch a fish now. Alright, I'm gonna watch, maybe step back a little bit. You know, funding is a real concern. We have these wonderful goals of 30% of Maine to be conserved by 2030, and we want to be ready for new land sales, but the funding is still hard, and I'm so excited that the Maine legislature passed a budget that has funding for Land for Maine Future for the next four years, $40 million, $10 million a year, which is wonderful. And Forest Legacy is well-funded at the federal level, but these easements and the acquisitions are expensive, and one of the things I'm seeing already is the price of forest land is going up, the price of easements is going up. Because of COVID, there's more and more interest in having a piece of paradise and owning some land in the Western mountains or the Northern mountains. And it's causing the prices to go up. And so having that conservation funding available, ready to go, being able, I think there's more opportunities, far more than there is money. And if there could be more conservation funding available, we could do even more. So that's always on my mind. I couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> well, you're out there doing it, though. You're getting us money, Brian. I'm trying.
All right, I don't know what's wrong with these fish here. Or what's wrong with Karen here. <laughs> Do you want to try it further down? Or? What's that? Do you want to try it further down? I just like it here so much. Yeah. It. I'll just do a few more and then maybe wrap it up. Yeah. I mean, for the Forest Society, we, you know, we are focused on being here, ready, willing, and able to do these deals with landowners, whether the landowners are commercial, commercially managed ownerships or conservation ownerships or um, any any array of ownerships. Um, and we look forward to more opportunities. Thanks for listening to A Talk in the Woods. For more conversations about Maine's land, water, and people, check out other episodes available wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is a product of the Maine Mountain Collaborative, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. To learn more about our mission, visit mainemountaincollaborative.org.